Welcome to Season 5 of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer, and I've worked in the animal healthcare industry. And prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician so they can share their own directions and journeys, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. One last thing. Thank you, Zoetis. Man, thank you so much. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support this incredible profession. Today, we get to chat with Liz Houston, a registered veterinary technician with a specialty in both internal medicine and emergency and critical care, and is the president of the National Veterinary Professionals Union and an instructor for VSPN, Veterinary Support Personnel Network. You are also the owner and head technician of Vet Tech Expert. I'm just like, does this list stop? I don't know. We have so much to chat with you about. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. It's nice to nice to be able to share my journey. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here because I feel like we have so much to talk about. And I have to tell you, as I was conducting research for this episode, I came across some of your presentations and they have the best titles like Sugar High, Nursing the DKA Patient, or If the Gut Works, Use It, Indications and Use of Feeding Tubes. Or um, I made a list. It was Wrap It Up. Basic wound healing. And then, oh wait, there were two more that I just loved. Green vomit? The answer isn't always vitamin K. And then there was one more I still loved. It was called Get Her Down, Nursing Care for the Mega Esophagus Dog. So I'm just, mm-hmm. I was like, packing up. I love it. So um, I want to talk about your background because you went to UCLA and have a bachelor's of arts degree in English and a master's degree in education from UCLA, but then became a technician, it looks like over a decade later. So what's going on? (laughs) Yeah. So um, I feel like I'm, in a way, I'm kind of typical of a lot of people in our profession in that I felt like I wanted to be a part of this profession from a very young age. So when I was little, I, from when I could talk, I said, I want to be a veterinarian. Um, and I didn't know about veterinary technology as a career. Um, and so I had this thought I was going to be a veterinarian and, you know, how life goes. And so there were changes and challenges. And so I changed direction. And um, it was after working in, I worked in for the Santa Clara County Bar Association. I worked for uh, uh, the CEO of a software company. And then I was taking some time off and volunteering and saw a person at the shelter where I was volunteering who had veterinary technology on her name tag. And I said, what is that? And she said, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's everything that the veterinarian doesn't do in the veterinarian's office. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. There's a program here, local. I went home that night, I applied and uh, here I am. What was it about being a technician that appealed to you? So as soon as I got into the technology, pro- the veterinary technology program at Foothill College, I could tell that it, immediately that this was exactly what 
I wanted to do in my mind as a, from a, as a child thinking I wanted to be a veterinarian, not realizing what all of the other roles were available in veteran, in the veterinary profession. And I thought, Oh, this is what I want. It's the perfect combination of the science and all of the, the biology, you know, knowledge and all of that combined with the hands-on animal care. And it just checked all of the boxes for me. But you've specialized too. So what made you leap from going licensed veterinary technician to taking those extra steps? When I was in school, our program director encouraged us to go to conferences. When you're a student, you can go to these conferences for free. Um, You know, you have to pay to travel. But other than that, you can go and um, you can attend and he told us this, you can attend any lecture you want. You don't have to just go to technician lectures. You don't just have to go to doctor lectures. Lectures. You can go to any lecture you choose at this conference. And so that's what I did. And I saw these people up there presenting um, who, when I looked up what who they were, I saw I kept seeing VTS, VTS, VTS. And I thought, what is that? That's what I want. And it, it's a, it's such a trigger for me, I guess, in a good way, a positive trigger, because I thought this is the kind of education I want to be doing. My degree is in, you know, high school education, but my student teaching told me I don't want to be a high school teacher. Uh, But this kind of teaching, speaking at conferences, you know, training fellow technicians, that really spoke to me. And, uh, And so I knew from very early on in my schooling that I wanted to specialize because that that was who I wanted to be. That was the first thought about specialization. And then when I got out into practice, I realized that if I specialized, I could provide the highest possible level of care for my patients. And that was really important to me, to be able to bring really advanced knowledge and skill to the care of every patient that I, t- that I took care of, take care of, that was important to me. And that is really through the journey of getting those VTSs, that was, I think, the most important thing that I learned uh, was, was the amount of skill and knowledge I can bring to bear to hopefully improve the outcome for uh, my patients. Mm-hmm. And did you do them at the same time? <laughs> I did. Uh, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> they don't let you do that anymore. And it's good that they don't because it's inc- it was incredibly difficult. Uh, and it's something I definitely don't recommend to people. And they don't let you do that anymore anyway. I was working in a really interesting hospital. It was a 24-7, 365, you know, day a year open general practice. No special, no specialists on staff, but we had an ICU, um, you know, like five surgery suites. Like, you know, it was a, it was a major operation hospital, 14,000 square feet, 25 plus doctors, over a hundred support staff. And I worked in the ICU. And so in that role, it, it, it was such an interesting and fulfilling combination of my passions, internal medicine and emergency and critical care because I was really doing both. I uh, don't like anesthesia. Uh, that's the one thing about being a credential technician is that I really don't like and I would rather not do. Uh, also dentistry, but uh, those are the two things that I really don't like. <laughs> um, so for me, working in ICU was absolutely perfect because it really let me do the things I love to do the most. Uh, and going for my specialties, it really allowed me to to do both of the specialties at the same time because I truly was working in both worlds. 
What do you love so much about ICU? Uh, taking care of really sick patients. Uh, I don't know why. I love it as much as I do, but uh, taking care of critical patients is something that really fills my cup. Uh, that is the thing that gets me uh, really jazzed and motivated when I'm at work. I want that crunchy 18-year-old DKA kitty. I want the septic, you know, the post-op septic abdomen. I want the toxicity case, you know, the xylitol toxicity uh, where we're constantly looking at blood levels and monitoring our fluid therapy and adjusting things uh, to help improve the outcome. Um, and those and oh, table patients, mechanically ventilated patients, taking care of those super, super critical guys and girls. I love that. That was something I never thought I would like. When I first started at this practice, I worked in the front-facing part of the hospital. It was an open practice. So we had clients in the whole anywhere in the practice they wanted to be anytime. But I started working in what we called outpatients. So that was the gen regular general practice, just seeing patients, vaccines, whatever. And I love client education, which goes, goes along with my education background, I think. And I love teaching clients. I love talking to clients. I love doing the puppy and kitten visits. Like that was so great. I just loved it. Uh, but my technician manager at the time said, "You, we really need you in the ICU. That's where you need to be. And I was like, I don't want to be in the ICU. Those women are scary. Uh, the patients are scary. I don't want to be there. And she said, no, that is really where you need to be. And she changed my life. And she was totally right. Uh, that was exactly where I needed to be. And I, she saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And she was right. And I just loved it and really thrived there. But sometimes the outcome is not good. Yeah, it's not. That's true. So so what, what makes you still love it? I think I view what we do in veterinary medicine as a whole, but particularly in ICU and critical care, I think what we do is really a gift for clients and for pets. And I, every time I work a shift in emergency or I work in the ICU, I am fighting death tooth and nail for my patients. And I am a fighter. I like that fight. And when I win the fight, wow, what a feeling. That is like the biggest high you can ever have. Yes. When you lose the fight, sometimes it's, it's okay that you've lost because you fought the hardest that you could until you just couldn't fight anymore. And I'm getting emotional just thinking and talking about it because it is a it's a gift what we can do. And the gift of the caring part is one thing, but the gift of the release is another thing. And I think that's um, something that uh, we talk about among ourselves a lot, but we don't talk about with the public a lot. Uh, you know, you hear from people, oh, I could never be a veterinarian or I could never be a veterinary technician because I could never put animals to sleep. Um, but for me, it's a gift that I can't give to any of my other family members, but I can give to my dogs and cats and, uh, and to people, you know, other people to their family members. It's a gift that we can give to be able to release them with dignity, in a way that's pain-free, um, with the advent of fear-free practice, the things that we can do to make pets' lives better in the veterinary setting. It's just, um, 
it's really heartening and uh, moving for me, as you might be able to tell. <laughs> no, I can see it. I can see it. And I think that is such a wonderful way of putting it. I love how you're reframing it for our listeners. As you said, a gift. So many of us are empathic. And I feel, you know, I, I, I feel that I have a lot of empathy, that I am an empathic person, not to the degree that some of my, some of my cohort is. Um, and that feeling those feelings can be hard. It can be really difficult. And I think that is what leads a lot to a lot of emotional exhaustion or burnout or compassion fatigue or whatever it is we want to call it, uh, moral distress. Um, feeling those feelings of other people can be draining, but it can also be really rewarding. And um, I feel privileged to be able to walk with clients when they're in that space. Um, and that's something that is uh, important to me and that I like to be able to do for clients. And, and it's hard sometimes, especially now when here we are, we're recording during a pandemic and, and we don't have that close contact with clients that we ordinarily do. And, and that can be difficult. I mean, I haven't worked a clinical shift since the pandemic started and that's difficult, uh, because I, I know I have a lot more to give to clinical practice. And I want to be out there doing it. And I would like it to be safer. <laughs> and just the idea of being able to walk along with people, uh, it's harder through a screen or through a phone. And and um, that has been a really tough thing, I think, for a lot of veterinary professionals during the pandemic. Yeah. Yep. I want to switch gears, but it still goes along with the idea of giving in that I'd like to talk about your work as president of the National Veterinary Professionals Union, because I think there's a tie in here, too, in just giving back to the profession and what what you're doing in that work. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, it, it was several years ago, I believe now, almost four years ago now, 2017, we... Um, a group of technicians in the Seattle area had the idea that um, they something needed to change in our profession, that the veterinary support side, really the veterinary side too, uh, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable position. And most of us on the support side, we can't work one job and live. Uh, you know, we can't pay rent by ourselves. We have to have a roommate or a spouse or a partner or live with family or something like that. Um, and the idea that we could come together and create change. Um, and that was, that's what led to the idea of unionization, because that's at heart what organizing, what labor organizing is, is coming together in solidarity as a group to fight for change that you want to see. Um, and there's a lot of things that we fight for, uh, but wages are definitely a key part of it. And it's something that is a big driver of people wanting to organize. So that was the group in Seattle uh, four years ago, I think now. Um, and my friend Morgan Van Fleet was a t is an LVT in Washington. She has now since transitioned into human nursing, but maintains her veterinary technician license. She put a post on social media. And I saw it and I said, I want to be involved. And she was like, okay, <laughs> you're, that makes like three of us who want to be involved. How do we build it from here? And uh, so we took it from there. We started reaching out to other unions to see if we could get interest because we're just like five 
LVTs, you know, and a couple of doctors who were interested in this, but we didn't have any money. We didn't know anything about labor organizing except kind of the broad idea behind it. Um, you know, how serendipity works, right? There was a practice in San Francisco who, independent of us, was working to organize and they were partnering with the International Longshoremen. So we got partnered with them and thank goodness we did because that gave us a huge trove of just knowledge, not to mention resources, legal resources, organizing resources, people who could help us actually become (laughs) a real union. So that's where, that's how we started. The San Francisco practice had their, they were the very first union election to be won um, in private veterinary practice, which was really exciting. There was a, a union a long time ago on the East Coast. It was a slightly different union. So uh, this was really technically the first one in private veterinary practice. Since then, we've had uh, three other successful elections. We have one contract that has been bargained um, and is in effect right now. So they're, you know, they're working under a labor contract. That's at Columbia River Veterinary Specialists in Vancouver, Washington. It's a pet vet practice. Uh, and so it's, you know, it. I hear from people every week who want to organize, who want, who need help who want help and they want to create positive change. And that it's, it's exciting. It's hard work, but it's exciting. Yeah, it sounds it. My goodness. And, you know, you can just feel the passion that you have um, about this. And, you know, obviously you're, you know, you're, you have strong feelings about the role of veterinary technicians in the profession. What do you think people need to know? Like, what does the public need to know? What, or what does the profession need to know with all of this work? Yeah, I love that you put both the public and the profession. And I think that is such a huge piece. Um, You know, when I look at veterinary schools, for example, the majority of veterinary schools in this country, um, no veterinary school is required to have a credentialed technician on staff. They don't even have to have one, much less a, a number of them. They use their fourth year students as free labor in their ICU, in their hospitals, whatever, rather than using credentialed veterinary technicians. Then we're graduating people who go out into practice and have no idea how to utilize a credentialed veterinary technician. They don't really learn delegation skills in veterinary school. They don't learn how to utilize their staff members appropriately. They don't learn about title protection uh, and proper title usage. And that's a huge problem in our industry. And, and it's all come together to create the the problem of veterinary technician shortage that we see right now. Um, So as for what does the profession need to know, the profession needs to understand what a credentialed veterinary veterinary technician is, what we're required to learn, the skills we have to master before we can graduate, because those are all things we can bring to the practice when we come out into practice. Uh, When you train as a veterinarian, you train a a person in your office to work as a veterinary assistant or receptionist, you know, that's great. And we obviously need those people because there is this huge shortage of trained people and and credentialed veterinary technicians in the country. Um, But what that person brings to your practice is only what you can teach them, as opposed to a credentialed person who is bringing a whole trove of knowledge 
in with them into the practice and their learning curve is a hockey stick. It's not a slow build to learn, learn and master skills and knowledge. They come in with a base of knowledge already. You don't have to teach them veterinary uh, terminology. You don't have to teach them how to do drug calculations. You don't have to teach them what's required on a prescription label for any drug you're going to send home with your clients. Um, so you can get them up and running so much faster than someone you bring in off the street to try and train. So that's for the profession. For the public, I would love for the public to understand who we are and our role on the team and to start demanding, (laughs) requesting that credentialed veterinary technicians are the ones taking care of their pets. I think that is going to be the push that is going to, you know, move the veterinary profession in the right direction. I just love your passion. And I completely agree with you. I can't, I, I mean, in all the practices I've worked in, I, I mean, the, the credentialed veterinary technician is key to maximizing performance and, and best patient care. So I absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, I have to tell you, when I was discussing you with our show producer, uh, Garnetta Santiago, she said, you are an advocate's advocate. And I thought, that's huge. So. I I just feel like I'm seeing all these different parts that are fitting to the main North Star. And I just was curious how you see it too. How does this all fit together? Boy, I love that. I thank you, Garnetta. That is such a lovely description. And I think it is so apt. And it really is. I think it really does pull all of these things together, these various things that I'm doing. It really is all advocacy. And I'm, I'm a huge person for advocating for our, our patients. That's my, one of my biggest things. One of the biggest reasons I wanted to be a VTS was to provide that care. And part of that care as a veterinary technician is advocating for them, making sure they get their pain medication, making sure that we're getting their uh, treatments that are effective, right? So that their, their owners, their pet parents aren't paying for things that aren't working, that aren't doing what we expect them to do. And I think that's a key role for a veterinary technician, that advocacy. And then here I am advocating for the other people who are doing that advocacy work. And that is that is the common thread, I think, that runs through everything um, that I do professionally. Among your many things that you do as, uh, you know, your owner and head technician of Vet Tech Expert. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So a few years ago, I think now it's, oh gosh, six years ago now, five or six years ago now, I decided to break off on my own and be um, a relief technician and work as a consultant and relief technician and trainer. And I, you know, I wanted to make myself more legitimate than just being like, oh, I'm Liz Houston, RVT. So I made a company. So I have this company, Vet Tech Expert. Uh, and so I do work relief primarily. I do do consulting and training as, as you know, as warranted, as hired. Uh, it's a tough road. Veterinarians on the whole, I'm not, I don't want to disparage anyone, but veterinarians feel, I think, that they... Um, are the best at everything that they do and that they can't possibly need help from anyone else to come and help them do what they're doing. And um, 
I, you know, I love that about veterinarians, obviously, you know, because I'm, I am also this like type A perfectionist type person as well. Um, so that part, it's hard. It's hard to convince a veterinarian that, you know, they should bring in a technician to help them um, set up their emergency service, to help them manage their schedule, to help them train their people. Uh, so, and to make the, the that value uh, argument, it can be difficult. Um you know, I charge a rate for my relief services if I'm just working as a relief technician, and it's higher than most people are used to paying their support staff. Uh, and I don't compromise on my rate. Uh, and I think that it's a wake-up call for a lot of veterinarians to realize um, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a pipe dream. I hope they look at it and realize they should be paying their people more. Um, I hope they look at it and realize, oh, if this is what, if this is the caliber, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but if this is the caliber of technician that I want working for me, I'm going to have to pay for that person. I can't expect to pay minimum wage um, to get someone who is highly qualified, you know, credentialed, college educated to do this job, who, you know, is maintaining their credential too, which is a whole other part of the, of the, that world, um, of credentialed technicians. And so that it's, it's a challenge, I think. Um, and I, this is what I tell anyone who comes to me and says, I want to be a relief technician. I want to go off on my own and do this. I'm like, yeah, be sure you have another source of income because it's hard to do, even though we are in short supply and everyone complains about not having enough technicians, it is hard to get people to pay you what you're worth as a relief technician. Um, and that's the biggest challenge, I think. Yeah. Well, first, I want to just say, if I had a horn, I would toot it because you should toot your own horn. I'll toot your horn for you because you're so awesome. Okay, I don't have, I see I'm sitting here in an office. I have no horns. I have like pencils. That's it. I could tap some pencils. <laughs> Second, I, you know, it's so funny because you were talking about your rate and I was, I was thinking, look what you get for that rate. Oh my gosh. Why would anyone even question it? The really amazing thing I think about veterinary technician specialists. So the, the VTS, the, the first VTS was founded, I think 21, 22 years ago. Uh, and that was the emergency and critical care VTS Academy. Um, but still, we still have veterinarians, even diplomats in the specialties who have no idea what it takes to become a VTS, the skills that we have to master, the knowledge that we have. Um, they just have no clue. They may have never worked with a VTS. And that's not a surprise. There are only about 13, somewhere between 13 and 1500 VTSs in the world. So it's not a surprise that veterinarians haven't worked with them and aren't familiar with them. But then it becomes a lot of uh, education about educating about your value, like you said, what what I can bring. You know, and I, I joke because I have a rate for my relief. Just if I come in and just work as a tech, this is my rate. And But if I'm coming in and training, it's a different rate. And the truth is you put any VTS on your schedule, like they can't help themselves. They're going to be training people while they're working, <laughs> right? Right, right? It's not like I could just go in and put blinders on and just do tech work for 10 hours. Um, so there's training that's happening anyway. So it's like a, it's like a double bargain really. Um, right. But it's hard to, in, until someone has that experience of working with 
with a specialist, I think it's difficult to understand for a, a veterinarian to understand what they can bring to the table. My final question for us, because we're just about out of time, is you know, what advice would you give to technicians who are starting out in their career? Yeah, my biggest piece of advice, well, I don't know. I have several pieces of advice. I'm not going to say my biggest because I have several pieces of advice. Uh, never stop learning. That's really the biggest thing. And it's part of our oath uh, as a veterinary technician. When you graduate from vet tech school uh, and you become a credential veterinary technician, part of our oath is committing ourselves to lifelong learning. And that is important. Go to conferences, uh, convince your employer that continuing education is important, that uh, they should allow you the time to do it and and hopefully some financial support for you to do that. Um, learning from people who are doing this work, who are specialists in the work that they're doing is so great. And that is one huge silver lining of COVID that you can do a lot of it from home. You don't even have to travel, which is amazing. Um, so that's my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice is make yourself indispensable to your clinic. So you do that by bringing that knowledge, that advanced knowledge, by always keeping your skills up, working on, you know, increasing and improving your skills all the time. Um, that is huge. And that brings huge amounts of value to your practice. The next thing is to always advocate for your patients and for yourself. And I think once you get practice advocating for your patients, you will be better at advocating for yourself. So keep speaking up. I know it's hard. It's hard to go to the doctor and say, I think this animal needs pain meds. I think this animal needs less fluid therapy. I think this animal has too much sedation on board, whatever it might be advocate and don't stop advocating for your patients. We can do it respectfully. We can do it in ways that ruffle the fewest amount of feathers as possible. Um, and we all know on the support side how difficult sometimes it can be, but don't stop advocating for your patients because the more you do that, the more you're going to show to the people you work with how much you care about not only your patients, your clients, your role on the team. And I think that is a big uh, part of 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 our side of the profession, the technician side of the profession is showing our value to each other, uh, to our employers. And that is how it gets out to the, to the public too, right? If we advocate for their family members when they're under our care, that is what's going to help. I think I can safely say with the utmost certainty that we have met the world's advocates advocate today. Absolutely. The Liz is the fighter. I, I feel absolutely honored that we were, we were able to talk to you today. I mean, that our listeners could hear what you're, you had to say and that I got a chance to ask you questions because you're phenomenal. Oh, thank you so really? much. Really? <laughs> thank you. Thank you thank so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I just, um, I thanks to Zoetis so much. Zoetis does an amazing job of supporting all of us in the profession. I can't say enough good things about them. So thank you. 
It's our pleasure. Well, this wraps up another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetis Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We would love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. I think Liz said it very well. So until next time, I'm Dr. Kim Farina, and this is Scrub Chat.